Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is absolutely no exception. I am very excited to be sitting here with Judith, Judith Finlayson. She is a best-selling author who has written books on a variety of subjects, from personal well-being and women's history to food and nutrition. Um, she's a former national newspaper comp columnist for the Globe and Mail, a magazine journalist, political speech writer. She's also the author of over a dozen cookbooks. Her most recent book and the topic of our conversation today, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, has been translated into German, French, Spanish, Slovenian, and Japanese. Judith lives in Toronto, Canada. Um, and Judith, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you for having me, Kara. I'm so pleased to be here today. Now, some of you will know from the title, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. If you're following the epigenetic science these days, that probably this is where Judith is going with this title. Um, and I have to say, I stumbled upon this fabulous book, this fabulous book. Um, it was released in 2019. I stumbled upon it uh, last year. And Judith and I connected because I posted it on Instagram and with, I, was, I was reading it while I was getting a reflexology set, uh, uh, workup and absolutely, absolutely enthralled with the story that Judith told. And I'm just beyond grateful that you were willing to jump on and, 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 and share this, this amazing work that, uh, that you've chronicled again. So I want to start at the beginning, kind of how you were charged with writing the body of knowledge and kind of what it is. I'll let you fill everybody in and then, then we'll kind of dive into the, to the heart of this important work. Okay. Well, um, as you said, I, I, I'm a journalist, basically that's what I do. And, uh, I've had, I've had careers as a speech writer and communications consultant and, various related aspects but all my life I've loved to cook. Cooking has always been my passion and my hobby and whatever and uh, around the year 2000 I had an opportunity to write a cookbook. Uh, I did that. It became very successful and uh, I thought hmm you know maybe it's time for me to kind of think about a career change and what a great idea to be able to make your hobby your livelihood. So I started writing cookbooks, but you know, being me, uh, I, I wasn't just happy doing cookbooks and I got really interested in the whole field of nutrition and food is medicine and health and you know, all of that stuff. My basic motto is that just because it's nutritious, 
doesn't mean that it can't be delicious. And in fact, I think the two things are, they really go together. Um, so in 2008, I published uh, a book on whole grains, uh, really went into researching the health benefits of whole grains and um, developing recipes around that. And uh, through that connection over a period of years, I'm condensing this took quite a long time, uh, I got to know Bob Moore, who uh, you will probably know as being the face on the package of Bob's Red Mill Whole Grains. And if there is one person that I interact with often, or, you know, uh, who shares my real passion for food and, and nutrition, it is Bob Moore. We are on exactly the same page. And uh, so Bob <clears throat> got me interested. He gave me, actually he's given me about three copies <clears throat> of a book called Nutrition in the Womb by David Barker. And he said, you should read this. And uh, so I did, and I got very interested in it. And uh, he knew who David Barker was. David Barker was a British epidemiologist uh, because David Barker had ended up at the end of his career um, working at, or he spent at um, um, the Orange. Uh, so by the end of his career, uh, he had he he had been invited to become a, a member of the uh, staff or whatever at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland. And he was doing a lot of work with uh, uh, Kent Thornburg, who is uh, also one of the experts uh, on developmental health. Uh, Kent, and I've asked him if I can say this, and he says, yes, you can, uh, is probably the world expert on the placenta. And that's a whole other subject. I mean, wow. I'm sure you know, uh, the placenta is a very understudied area yeah. of, of research. And my theory is because, of course, it's women, so it doesn't yeah. get studied as thoroughly as it should. Uh, but anyway, all of which is to say that through all of these connections, I became very interested in David Barker. Uh, and uh, started doing research, uh, you know, asking people like my doctor, my naturopath, whatever, uh, what they knew about David Barker and the developmental origins of health and disease and nobody had ever heard of it. So at that point I thought, wow, uh, this is a message that really needs to get out there. And um, so I wrote, you are what your grandparents ate. <laughs> That it's, it wasn't quite they, that simple, but you know, <laughs> that, that's the short form story of it. So first of all, I just want to say for housekeeping, people are going to wonder about your cookbooks. And so I just wanted to assure folks that I know you're curious. I'm actually curious too. And we'll make sure we put links on our show notes um, because you're, you've convinced me really quite readily that they're probably really good. It sounds like you have some delicious recipes. But then anyway, yeah, so your world unfolds and you were given this body of information that I didn't know. And that's how, kind of how our conversation started. Like the David, Dr. David Barker, his, he, he, he has, he's talking about the science of epigenetics. He is connecting the dots about, um, you know, influences, heritable and, and, and in utero influences that have profound implications over the course of our life and into, into our offspring and, and, and subsequent generations' lives. It's, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary what he did. And I feel like you were sort of charged with conveying the importance of this, of this work that I certainly didn't come across in, in any of my training. Um, so talk about that like just talk about who David Barker is and and really what he um you know what he did for epidemiology and for sort of the omics revolution and you know just some of the juicy stories that you and I 
we're talking about that are like a, a scientific, you know, sort of detective story. Yes, uh, it is a scientific detective story, that's for sure. Um, the, it, before we get to epigenetics, we really have to talk about the field of science known as epidemiology, which is what David Barker was. He was an epidemiologist. And, um, you know, for your audience, in case they don't know, epidemiologists are scientists that study the disease patterns in populations of people. And David Barker had been doing that for years. Uh, he was big work or one of his big works was the Atlas of Mortality, which I think he started publishing in the 1970s. Uh, and in that original epidemiological work, he started noticing uh, that heart disease was more prevalent in areas of Britain and Wales that were less affluent. Now that may not seem like a great insight at this point, uh, but in those days, you have to remember that heart disease was really thought to be a disease of affluence. It was linked with eating too much expensive red meat. Uh, but his statistics were showing connections between being poor uh, and higher rates of maternal and infant mortality and heart disease later in life. What he didn't have was an explanation for how this happened in individuals. But he was a very, very intuitive person and his gut was telling him that the link between heart disease and poverty had something to do with what happened in pregnancy. Mm. He, he knew that he needed data to establish these biological links. So over the next decade or so, he, and it took that long to get the information he needed, and he was able to do that thanks to three primary sources. And the first significant source was uh, the Hertfordshire ledgers. Uh, these records were compiled in the early 20th century by midwives in Hertfordshire, a country in England. And they recorded the birth weight of newborns, newborns and how much they weighed on their first birthday. And we have this information thanks to um, one of the most delightful characters in the book, and that's E. Margaret um, Burnside, whose title was something like the chief, chief inspector of, of visiting uh, health visitors and midwives. And she was apparently quite a formidable character. I got really interested in her as a person. Uh, and she managed, she was quite tall and I gather rather imposing and she managed to, um, I think basically scare some of the uh, public officials into spending more money on this exercise than they might have and giving her things like baby scales that she could give to her health visitors. Uh, and she rode all over England on her bicycle, uh, visiting these people and taking down this information, which I think is really, really, I mean, when you just think about it, it it's cutting edge. It's led to these cutting edge findings in this new science of epigenetics. And if we didn't have Margaret Burnside on her bicycle, we never would gotten there so it's a lovely image that really kind of and that's way back it's it's an it, it is such a cool image I actually have in my notes she was also referred to as the the lady inspector of midwives mm -hmm. and 1911 is it seems like when she was doing her work but how did how did Dr. Barker happen upon this the incredibly valuable data from this extraordinary record keeper well, that's another uh, story. And there are a couple of, um, of uh, examples of real just luck, sheer luck. Um, he, found, he found out about them and uh, I'm not, I can't quite remember how. I've actually seen them and they're fascinating. They look like something out of Dickens. They're big ledgers and they're kind of written in these, you know, pen and ink. Uh, fountain pen script and whatever. Uh, but 
he he learned about them and then was told that he couldn't have access to them because they contained too much personal information. Jeez. So they were really, you know, I, what they were getting at uh, in some of the comments was what we would now describe as the social determinants of health. Um, you know, like poverty, cleanliness, you know, mm -hmm. trauma, those kinds of things. But anyway, this was considered uh, personal private information. And she was capturing that and having the, 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 the nurses that were working? A quick little notes, yes. I mean, not, you know, extensive details or psychotherapy or whatever, but quick little notes that would, that would signal um, uh, certain things. So uh, anyway, he was told that he could not see the records uh, because they contained personal information. Well, you will know uh, if you know anything about the history of the Second World War that children were um, evacuated from London to the countryside to protect them from the bombing, mothers and, and, and children. And David Barker was one of those children uh, with his mother and his sister was born in a town in Hertfordshire, I forget the name of Mad Haddam, I think it was. And um, because of that, her birth was recorded in these records, which were continuing to that point. And Dr. Barker was able to get access to the records because he was a family member of someone whose information contained therein. Um, so because of that information or that data that he got from those ledgers, he was able to show that if you weigh 5.5 pounds or less at birth, you are three to five times more as likely to develop heart disease than a newborn who weighed eight pounds. So that was the beginning of the developmental origins of health that identified the link between pregnancy and uh, later health, health as an adult. Um, and he published that in 1986 in, it was then called the Bar Barker Hypothesis in the um, Lancet. And, and how was it? Yeah, go ahead. And he thought he was crazy. I mean, he was just dismissed as a, 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 a crazy person. Let me just ask you, do you know in your research what kind of recommendations were I mean, it wasn't that long ago, the 80s. It's, I, I mean, actually, it's a little bit mind-blowing that it was so dismissed. I mean, that's well into my lifetime. Um, do you, what, he yeah. just made the link between what happens in pregnancy uh, and things like poor nutrition, low birth weight, which was linked to poor nutrition. He was starting to make the links with nutrition, but it was really just that marker of low birth weight and the increased rank risk of heart disease as an adult. And of course there was the link, what he had seen originally with the heart disease and poverty, which he was finding out from his epidemiological studies. Uh, he next, he moved on to Holland. He heard about um, the maternity records uh, that were kept during what is known as the Dutch hunger winter. And mm -hmm. interestingly, these also had almost disappeared. Uh, they had ended up under a staircase in a building that was demolished, as I recall, um, and were, were just kind of found by accident and, and retained. And uh, the Dutch hunger winter refers to a period during the Second World War when the Germans blocked food shipments to parts of the Netherlands. Uh, the people were on the brink of starvation for the entire winter. If you've read anything yeah. about it, you, you will know they talked about eating tulip bulbs. You know, that was, that was all they had to eat. 
the data, the Dutch kept very, very detailed records. The Dutch are very detailed oriented. I can say that because my husband is of Dutch uh, extraction. Um, his, his grandparents immigrated from Holland uh, and they are very well organized. That's one of their strains. And so they have these very detailed records, the statistics of which show that the offspring of women who were pregnant during that period were especially vulnerable to developing chronic illnesses that were metabolic in origin. They were twice as likely to have heart disease, more likely to be obese and to suffer or to suffer from diabetes, high blood pressure and high cholesterol than those whose mothers had been pregnant in normal conditions. Wasn't schizophrenia increased in that population too? Not, not, not in those studies. Uh, they, they, they really, and then they, they went back and, and you will be interested in this. When they went back later, once they could start doing um, epigenetic uh, studies, they, they could show changes in methylation. Mm -hmm. um, so his, his third uh, treasure trove was the Helsinki birth, birth cohort study. And that really, the Finns began in 1934 to keep very detailed health records on groups of people, which included their weight as newborns. Um, and, but they, they went beyond what uh, Margaret Burnside did. They continued to track the weight and growth patterns of children until they turned 11. And that additional information turned out to be very valuable because it showed for the first time that people who develop some types of chronic illness grow and develop differently from others. So hypertension was one of the key examples. We know that it's linked with low birth weight and thanks to the childhood tracking that David Barker could use based on the Helsinki birth cohort information, um, he, we also know that when children's body mass index increases rapidly between the ages of three and 15, it increases their vulnerability to developing hypertension. Um, so thanks to epidemiologists uh, and David Barker, um, we learned uh, that what happens in the womb doesn't stay in the womb and that the risk for many chronic diseases originates in fetal life and that early childhood experiences have an impact as well. Um, we're seeing some of this now. I mean, there, there's so much out there that, that supports this, like adverse childhood experiences, social determinants of health and disease that are really in the background and have been for some time, but they, really can coalesce around the developmental origins of health and disease information. Um, I will say uh, a couple of other things. Um, I, I went to Holland, I, I met with Tessa Roseboom who, who does the um, uh, Dutch hunger winter uh, things. And also um, um, with, uh, um, I've just forgotten his first name, um, Erickson, uh, Dr. Erickson, who um, uh, was the health, uh, was the Helsinki um, person. He and David Barker became great friends. Uh, but the interesting thing, uh, when he first met Barker and they met at a conference, he too thought Barker was bonkers. But he knew that he had this huge database back in Helsinki that he could use. And he initially decided that he was going to use it to prove that David Barker was wrong. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I know a lot of you out there are practitioners like me, helping patients heal using functional medicine to get the root cause of illness. 
a starting point for many of us uh, is using laboratory testing. In fact, using sophisticated, uh, specialized laboratory testing. I did my postdoc uh, specifically in this testing and have been using it in clinical practice um, ever since. And so to that end, I'm excited to tell you about Rupa Health. Rupa Health allows us to order over 20 labs from a single online portal. That's right. You can just access easily 20 different specialty tests that you're using all of the time and probably juggling kits and your office staff are overwhelmed and you're explaining test kits to patients, et cetera, et cetera. You can now order easily your Dutch tests, your Vibrant America, Genova, Great Plains, and more from this single space. On average, Rupa makes ordering and managing lab testing 90% faster. I'll say that again, 90% faster letting you simplify the process of getting the functional tests you need and giving more time to focus on patients. I cannot tell you what a huge, huge, huge solution this is to a challenging juggle. So go to rupahealth.com and sign up for uh, free or schedule a live demo with the team. That's rupahealth, R-U-P-A, health.com. Now let's get back to this month's episode. And uh, the not he of course he didn't pr prove that, uh, but he uh, the two of them became great friends, and he is now there. All of these people are now collaborating with him, uh, or were collaborating with him. He died uh, a few years ago, but producing a huge body of research under the umbrella of developmental origins of health and disease. So. Um, you know, it's an interesting, it, it's really an interesting story. Um, he knew, he came home and told his wife when he first had that realization that it was linked, that chronic illness was really linked to what happened in the womb. Uh, he knew what he was in for in terms of being, um, not accepted by, by the medical and research profession. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, he thought long and hard about it and, you know, he then proceeded to carry on. And over the years, he was accepted. Uh, I'm told by Kent Thornburg that really in terms of his acceptance in the US, it was around the year 2000 when he was uh, invited to speak to the National Institutes of Health and that that is really a marker of, of um, you know, now you've kind of arrived, but it took a long time right. uh, for, for him to arrive at that point. And just holding steady with this truth that he had identified and, you know, the, the certainly the climb, I mean, it there's a great deal of, of, of pressure in our, our profession to, um, you know, to conform even, you know, and to, and to prescribe to a certain body of beliefs, even, even as a naturopathic doctor, but, you know, I think this exists in those, you know, those lone voices who have the courage to walk the truth, especially something as incredibly important as this, I'm just still blown away that, you know, he was being, you know, ousted back in the, well, when it was published in the 80s in The Lancet. And it, this is so obvious to us today. So like, and I want, you know, and I know my obstetrician colleagues are certainly they're thinking about what's happening in utero all the time and they're recognizing small for gestational age and and and, and the implications and health of 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 the of the baby. Um, so it's I, I want I, I'm just curious. I, my progressive colleagues, the the stones out in um, Ashland, Oregon, and their daughter, Emily Roadbaum. I just want to give a shout out to their Grow Baby Health work and the amazing work that they're doing uh, in their clinic. In fact, they have a great publication, um, two publications actually, where they mention David Barker and one of them. And I'll, I'll just put pop those on the show notes for people who are who are curious because they're actually they're thinking about this body of work. And I know his work really influenced them. But I'm I'm curious what 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 other people what other 
obstetricians, gynecologists, internal medicine folks, whether Barker has made it into mainstream medical school. It wasn't, he wasn't in my training. Um, did I just have a couple of questions from the data sets that you just spoke to. One is, um, did they recognize breastfeeding? Were they thinking about breastfeeding? I mean, I suppose in the early, there wasn't alternative, but yeah. Good question. I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I, 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 I haven't seen it mentioned. Um, I think for most, breastfeeding would have been the standard. At sure. Point. They, yeah. Certainly for the Margaret Burnside data, Right. Uh, during the, the war, they, they, I mean, if they weren't having food, um, you know, they, they, sure, they, they would have. Um, but it was just a give, it would be a given until whenever formula was developed. That yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> so it, it, you know, so that, that was the, ori the origins of the developmental origins of health and disease were really um, epidemiology, epidemiological, uh -huh. uh, and then um, around the year 2000, around the time that it was beginning to get just a little bit of traction in, in mainstream uh, health and medicine, um, the science of epigenetics came on the floor. Right. And that, as you know, explores how factors like nutrition influence health uh, by affecting a process known as gene expression. And, um, you know, uh, just for your audience, uh, you know, they, we know that the genes you inherited from your parents remain constant. Um, but what you may not know is that certain things like nutrition can spark reactions that change how those genes express themselves. I just want to underscore the point that you made talking about um, the, you know, the two, the, the different data sets, um, the Burnside data set, the early London data set, and then the, um, I think it was the, uh, well, the overcalyx data set, is that uh, on one hand, we're looking at in utero, you know, lack of adequate nour nourishment in utero and outcomes associated with that. But you actually talked about the early childhood and sort of pre-puberty time as excess nourishment resulted in almost a similar fallout. Yeah, they talk about a J-curve uh, in, in some of that, that uh, and it's linked with in some cases, diabetes, uh, where where you get overnutrition and you get babies that are born too large. Um, so it's not necessarily the best nutrition, but you 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 do have an out of whack uh, result that also can predispose uh, to chronic conditions. The under our poor nutrition is. Um, the, the better studied or most closely studied, but they are looking now at the other end of the spectrum too. So in 2000, um, the, yeah, at the epi, so we map out the genome and we start to kind of, I, th I think maybe it was a little bit, it was disappointing, right? Not one gene, one disease. We, we, yes. we realized that wasn't, wasn't the case. In fact, it was infinitely more complex and it sort of, there wasn't going to be easy answers, I think. And then that ushered in the whole era of omics, including epigenomics and, you know, how, um, how epi on top of the gene, how, how influencing genetic expression uh, is by environmental exposures is kind of where the rubber meets the road, I think, in a lot of ways. And, and, and I guess, so my question, my next question to you as you unfold the story, but is, is what was David Walker thinking about? Like he's an epidemiologist. So he's just, he's connecting these dots and showing here's A and then here's outcome, you know, B, C and D. But was he thinking mechanistically and sort of like, when did, you know, was he thinking about epigenetics at that time in the early 2000s? Or like, can you just connect those dots? Because that's certainly where you, where you went. Yes. Well, no, he, he was too. He was, he was really a, um, 
uh, a very advanced thinker and a very intuitive thinker. Uh, 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 to everyone who I've met who, who knows him or knew him, uh, absolutely brilliant man. Um, kind of, in many ways, the kind of odd scientist. Um, uh, I, uh, he, he loved, he and his wife were, were very, very, they were lovely, or she's still alive, but lovely, lovely people. Uh, and everybody speaks um, very positively of them who knew them, but they used to have uh, everybody over to their house uh, to stay. Um, when the researchers would come, they'd work together and they'd stay. Um, and um, um, it's just terrible that I can't remember his name because I, I, um, I, his first name, but Dr. Erickson, um, I'm just having a mental block today, told me a funny story about uh, going to uh, be Johan. Johan. Johan, yes. <laughs> and so, thank you. And staying with them uh, in um, uh, near, near Southampton, where they where they lived. Uh, and they were kind of in the countryside and there was a river that ran through the property and he had the guest room and he got up the one morning and, and looked out the window and he saw this man in a suit with his back to him uh, fishing on the, <laughs> throwing a fishing rod into the river. And uh, anyway, he caught a fish and uh, he turned around and it was, it was David and uh, David had caught the fish that they were going to eat for dinner and uh, his wife was a wonderful cook uh, and Johan, Johan and, and, uh, and David both loved to eat and cook and whenever they went to, um, whenever he went to Helsinki, the two of them would have a merry old time eating, eating their way around the city and, and uh, sampling lots of good wine. Uh, but anyway, you know, there he was fishing in his suit and, and they ate the fish for dinner and then he brought the fish into the house and put it in the fridge and went off to work in his, you know, three-piece suit. Uh, but he was that kind of person. Um, and often, uh, you know, kind of uh, somewhere else. Uh, uh, Kent Thornburg told me a story about taking, if you've ever been to OHSU, they have a uh, cable car that goes yeah. between the, uh, hill, the hill and the, the campus on the main grounds and uh, he and David were riding in the cable car one day and one day he said and, and a woman kept a woman came up and said to David something about his sweater and he said you know I don't know what she was talking about and said well David you have it on inside out <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it was just, his life was a, a kind of constant, um, uh, you know, uh, one, one after another of these kinds of stories. But uh, he did get interested in epigenetics and, uh, you know, thanks to that, they were beginning to see, uh, or were starting to be able to show that when a pregnant woman doesn't get, for instance, enough nutrition, that it sparks changes in gene expression that affect how the fetus develops and grows. Uh, so, I mean, you know about the epigenetic landscape and how we develop, uh, you know, how we go from this, you know, the two little reproductive cells that meet and, you know, we develop brain cells and liver cells and, you know, heart cells and all of that and become yeah this complex human and that's really you know epigenetics yeah. and so when things when you don't get the proper input while all of these processes are going on um, of course it affects things at the cellular level uh, and it creates these kind of biological memories is the term I like to use because I think it's easy to understand. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really changes in gene expression that, that are epigenetic mod modulations, but these memories uh, go into your body and stay there and they become a potential 
uh, sources of chronic illness, a uh, wide range of chronic illnesses. And, you know, we now see more and more as the research advances uh, from heart disease and diabetes uh, to some types of cancer. Uh, and we're also seeing that some of these changes to gene expression may be passed on to future generations. So we have key factors like poor nutrition. Um, I mean, Kent Thornburg uh, says that now the research is showing that um, chronic stress can be as powerful in terms of uh, really implementing these epigenetic changes as poor nutrition as well. And that those changes in gene expression are passed on to future generations. And, you know, one of the um, uh, key researchers in that area is Rachel Yehuda uh, in, in New York City. And she started by looking at uh, the children of Holocaust survivors and how they were showing symptoms of the trauma that their parents had uh, experienced. Um, and then when she measured, uh, uh, cortisol levels in uh, women who um, were pregnant at the time of 9-11, uh, she found changes there uh, in those that were susceptible to uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder that, that some were and some weren't, and those that were uh, past those susceptibilities or vulnerabilities on to um, the babies that they were carrying. So that's why, you know, we can say with some confidence that you are what your grandparents ate because these changes uh, leave imprints on reproductive cells and um, uh, are passed on through the generations. I don't know if you think, if you want to talk a little bit in a little bit more detail about that for your audience, um, you know, about how both the, the sperm, we're now seeing that men have a much larger role than we might have thought yes. uh, in the past, and the female egg carry biological memories. Um, and those, uh, those are transmitted through what are known as epigenetic modifications. Uh, yeah, hmm. I, I, you know, it's, this is, an incredibly interesting area for me and, and and one that I've I've spent some time also looking at and I'm just you know I, I appreciate you know you're I just appreciate the the background that you're providing I can say that you know I know from DNA methylation that well as you said you know it it's it, we're, we're using it to define the fate of our pluripotent stem cells. So is it going to be a liver cell or an eye cell and, you know, and on and on, a retinal cell. Um, but that we do inherit about, we, we, the, 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 the DNA methylation is basically scrubbed clean in the, on the embryo from our parents with the exception of what I've read is about 30%. And it's that little remaining methylation that I think is the sort of heritable region, at least of that epigenetic mark. Um, yeah, the, 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 it, yes, and I, that, that you're, you're dead on there. And we're also that other uh, histone things are also yes. passed on too. So, right. um, you and know- Those are the proteins that the DNA is, is wound around, yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's easy, it's easy to grasp. I think the easiest image to grasp is that of a fetus forming in its mother's belly. So, I mean, just it's, it, it's, it's not hard to see or to think about the fact that the food she eats, the air she breathes, the toxins she's exposed to are going to have some kind of impact on that baby. Uh, you know, and we're all, I mean, women women don't drink now when they're pregnant they don't drink yes. alcohol and that's why yes so you know this is it's not a big leap from that to the kind of uh science of epigenetics and how those changes are transmitted uh at the cellular level um with with females uh what we tend not to think about uh 
<clears throat> is that if the fetus is a female, uh, her, her eggs, that, that woman's eggs are forming while she is still a fetus yes. in her mother's tummy. So, um, you know, all of these things that are happening to her mother are also having an impact on her eggs, which are transmitted to the next generation. Uh, so it's, it's, I mean, if you can really isolate it and look at those components, it's not a big stretch to make those connections. But it's fascinating how long it took us to get started um, and how much complicated science kind of had to evolve before we could been to begin to really accept it as true. And embrace it, right. And so in your work, and, and in, well, in your book, you make a lot of recommendations about, you know, what we need to think about to influence optimal epigenetic expression. And I, you know, and I would just love to hear some of your top thoughts, I guess, you know, both from your book, but also maybe things that have, you know, how have you changed from writing this book and, and learning this, um, this story? Well, I, I mean, I think some people would say I was kind of a zealot because I just, I don't eat processed foods. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I'm really very keen, you know, I'm a whole foods person. I really look after my micro, probably my microbiome is the thing <laughs> that's really, as that science has advanced, I've become, you know, very, very um, involved with my uh bacteria, my little microorganisms, <laughs> I, you know, I think about, I, I don't really talk to them in the morning, but I have been known to say that I do. <laughs> uh, because I, you know, they're, they're really there with me. But, you know, I, what I say is that, you know, it's really um, not, it's really a lot of common sense. We have all this now high tech science, like epigenetics, and so on. And, and, and I mean, when you start reading the microbiome stuff that's coming out, it's, it's pretty dazzling. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's basically just a lot of, you know, what your grandmother probably knew. Yes. And that is, you know, the three, the three kind of things are, uh, are, are eat, eat well, good whole foods. Um, you know, Michael Pollan said it best. I couldn't do it any better than him. Uh, you know, real foods with, with no ingredients that you're, you know, eat foods, mostly plants, uh, and nothing that your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. So none of those, you know, food-like substances or whatever. Um, physical activity, I mean, that's been shown to uh, have a really uh, strong benefit on your epigenome. It changes uh, genetics. Uh, things like mindfulness have also been shown to improve gene expression. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, avoiding toxins, that's a little trickier because they're everywhere. Right. Uh, and we don't have um, a huge amount of control over that. But, you know, it, those, though, if you do those things, you're really well on the way to um, promoting uh, health in a very um, research-supported way. Yeah, that's right. The one other thing I would add, just from our own our, our own work, is sleep. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you would agree. Sleep, sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to. I, I I want you to just connect the dots on, and I absolutely agree with you too. I, I I've said on this podcast before. I did my background. I did a. a, a postdoctorate in laboratory science and we were the first clinical lab to re to to release um you know a microbiome a a, a pcr dna analysis of the stool and um to to you know clinical outside of the research setting and i remember feeling so excited back then and we would find you know precision probiotics and maybe we would use medication in a new way and it would just be very kind of advanced and sort of next generation and I was so with this at this this new powerful technology my major aha was 
well, you need to chew your food and you need to eat a whole foods diet, you know, and rest and digest. And it's exactly what you said, this advancing technology almost forces us to look at how we evolved. Yeah, it takes you back to where you began. It's amazing. It really does. It really does. And my, I remember my, my um, advisor and mentor would take a nap, you know, just a little brief nap after he had lunch and sort of let himself digest. He really practiced what he preached. Um, what about the microbiome and the epigenome? I mean, you do focus on that and you're obviously interested in it in your own life. Any comments there on the interface between the two? Um, between the microbiome and epigenome, epigenetics. Uh, well, yes, uh, you know that those little microbes <laughs> do signal to each other, uh, you know, across your genome, uh, and they do. Uh, the Mediterranean diet, for instance, has been shown to improve gene expression. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it all kind of dovetails, uh, yeah. and, uh, it, you know, it's kind of what goes around, comes around and, and to come back to processed foods. I mean, we know that you don't have to, what is it just after a couple of days, your microbiome goes south on a diet of processed foods, uh, inflammation sores, um, you know, you can end up getting endotoxins in your bloodstream. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's just really back to the old ways kind of works best. Yes. Uh, so. With that lovely <laughs> ending, down to earth ending, I just, I want to thank you again, Judith, for joining me and, and, and just sharing this very interesting scientific mystery that um, really helped move, move us forward uh, in how we approach care. So again, everybody, Judith Finlayson, uh, you are what your grandparents ate, what you need to know about nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease. Thank you so much for joining me today on New Frontiers, Judith. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.